Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. I'm Jeff Meekum and I'll be your host. Today we're joined again by fellowship trained laryngologist Dr. Will Carley to discuss laryngeal manifestations of systemic disease. Dr. Carley, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Appreciate it. Today's episode involves a collection of a variety of different systemic disorders that commonly manifest as symptoms or pathologies of the larynx. Although we're not able to provide a comprehensive review of each of the different systemic disorders that manifest with the larynx, our hope is to provide a little bit of background about ones that commonly present this way. We're going to focus today on the following disorders, granulomatosis with polyangiitis, sarcoidosis, amyloidosis, rheumatoid arthritis, mucous membrane pemphigoid, and IgG4-related disease. Before we begin, I wanted to talk more in a general and global sense about how to approach recognizing, diagnosing, and treating laryngeal manifestations of underlying systemic disease. Dr. Carley, in your experience, what are some of the red flags, so to speak, that indicate that a laryngeal symptom may actually be a manifestation of an underlying systemic disease? That's a good question. Uh, there's a couple different answers I can give for that. And it depends on really what I'm thinking for the patient. So it all is going to start off with the history. Usually there is something that's pushing me in one direction or another when it comes to whether it's a systemic disease or just your typical bread and butter laryngeal disease. But if I have an inkling that we're looking more towards a systemic disease, one of the questions I'll always ask is, is there anything else weird going on with your body? And I'll give an example. I'll say, do you have any lesions anywhere else? Is there anything else that you've been thinking to yourself that this just isn't right that's been going on for the ex- last number of months? Um, lots of times there'll be things that have, in their mind, nothing to do with what's going on in their throat that they'll mention. And lots of times, honestly, it, it's not helpful at all. But when you're dealing with a a systemic disease, a rheumatologic disease, making sure that you're catching anything else that might help your diagnosis is important. The other thing that's super helpful is going to be your laryngeal exam, whether it be a rigid or flexible laryngoscopy. And there are certain telltale signs for a lot of these diseases that we'll get into. But once we see some of those telltale signs, then we'll go further into the history to really try and parse out if we're looking at that disease or something else. For these patients that have underlying systemic disease manifesting in the larynx, by the time they arrive in your office, do they already have the systemic disease diagnosis in hand, or are you as their laryngologist the first step to actually making the overall systemic diagnosis by evaluating and treating their laryngeal symptoms? It's extremely variable. There's plenty of cases where I get to send a patient with GPA because their provider wants to rule out any airway involvement. However, there's plenty of cases where we don't have a diagnosis about what's going on and the larynx has been the patient's focus or the other systems that have been involved have not gotten a diagnosis. And then you're being the one who gives that diagnosis. And those are the much more rewarding cases in my experience. And as we'll see today, there's obviously a large overlap between these different disorders in terms of what they look like and their presenting symptoms. Do you have any helpful ways to remember or classify them when you're working up a differential for these patients? Apart from one, there aren't any great groupings for these systemic diseases. The one that you'll often see within your textbook is SAW or SAG, depending on what you're calling GPA these days, but 
in terms of anatomy, going from superior to inferior, your superglottis is going to be more commonly sarcoidosis, your glossomy more commonly amyloidosis, and your subglottis more commonly granulomatosis with polyangitis. That being said, you can have sarcoid involving other parts of the larynx, amyloidosis involving any part of the larynx, but it's a good rubric for remembering which specific part of the body is more commonly affected by these three specific diseases. All right. Well, at this point, we'll switch gears and start running through each of the different disorders I mentioned earlier. Uh, I wanted to point out that as Dr. Carly and I were preparing for this episode, one of the challenges that came up is that this topic is often best paired with images. So we may be a little limited in the audio format. I'd recommend that as you listen to the episode or as you study these disorders, that you try to pair it with reviewing images, especially from laryngoscopy, so that you can understand a little more about what Dr. Carly is trying to describe. Additionally, we're going to focus mostly on the laryngeal manifestations of these disorders, but try to paint a broad picture to cover maybe the general global picture of the disorders to help put context in mind when you're seeing these people in clinic. First on our list is granulomatosis with polyangiitis, or GPA. Dr. Carly, would you mind starting by telling us what granulomatosis with polyangiitis is? This is a multi-system inflammatory disease characterized by necrotizing vasculitis, arterioles, capillaries, and venules. It's either limited or systemic. Limited typically considered to have no renal involvement versus systemic, which is typically with pulmonary and renal involvement. So how does this disease present both in general and more specifically in the larynx? Well, it has a lot of different manifestations from an ENT perspective. From a non-ENT perspective, it involves the kidneys and the lungs primarily. When it comes to our perspective, it typically involves the subglottis, the ears, and the nose. Uh, of all the different components that can affect, the lungs are the most common, typically around 90% or so of these patients. When it comes to your ENT manifestations, the one that's most concerning is the subgloxinosis, which can present just like an idiopathic subgloxinosis with strider, inspiratory typically, dyspnea. Um, if it extends more superiorly, you can start getting glottic involvement. With an idiopathic subgloxinosis, you very rarely, if ever, will expect any glottic involvement without some type of iatrogenic component to it. Whereas with GPA, this can absolutely extend to the vocal folds without touching at first. You can get some hemoptysis from it as well as cough. Um, more importantly, though, is putting together the fact that with idiopathic subgloxinosis, you're expecting just these findings in the subglottis. With these GPA patients, you're also expecting their nose to look terrible, specifically their nasal cavity, and you're also expecting their ears to have some component, more commonly with the nasal cavity than with the ears. So if you have any concern for GPA, you want to do a thorough nasal endoscopy, and you also want to do uh, an ear exam as well. When it comes to your laryngoscopic findings with the subgloxinosis, keep in mind you may not be able to see it with your typical flexible laryngoscopy. It may require numbing up of the vocal cords first in order to go below the vocal cords in order to actually see it. But apart from that, you won't necessarily be able to tell a difference between a GPA stenosis and an idiopathic stenosis just based off of its appearance, and they can have an overlapping appearance. Um, there's oftentimes erythema for both. There can be exudate for both. Um, so looking at it just alone won't tell you necessarily which one you're dealing with. 
but more commonly, it's the fact that the patient's also dealing with a lot of nasal crusting and sneakyae. They also have a mill ear effusion. That's really what's going to be pushing you towards that GPA diagnosis. What about the epidemiology of GPA? Well, it's more common in females than males. Uh, it doesn't have a great age distribution that's known for it. I will say that it is more commonly diagnosed in people that aren't elderly, but it's not to say that you can't be diagnosed with it in the older population. And as we mentioned with the ENT presentations, the most common is sinonasal involvement. So up to 90% of patients will have that. That is typically the first symptom they will get and is typically the last symptom that will go away when treating this disease. And that's also true with the recurrence of disease. So when you have this disease under good control with medication, which we'll touch on in a second, it's important for the patient to keep an eye on their nasal symptoms because if those flare up, those typically will happen before the other things come back up. Um, the most common sinonasal presentation is just what patients will describe as chronic sinusitis, but in reality, what it is is a lot of nasal crusting, a lot of purulence that's coming out from the nose, green, yellow stuff. Um, and when you look inside a lot of ulcerations, you'll see sinechia, even though they don't have a history of any prior surgeries. When it comes to the laryngeal involvement, probably less than 20% of patients have some form of subglottic stenosis. Uh, oftentimes, these patients, if you catch them early enough, don't really have a frank stenosis. Instead, they have what looks like two pillows in the infraglottic subglottic region. If that's the case, those patients should not be cut. You don't want to take them to the OR and cut them because if you treat them when they're at that stage with just medication, you're expecting it won't turn into a frank stenosis. If they can't wait and their airway is not good enough to just be treated with corticosteroids or other medications that we'll touch on, what you can do is take them to the OR, dilate them, and inject them with Kenalog at that time. The dilation alone will buy you an extra week, but the steroid injection is really what will get you the best benefit. And then doing further in-office steroid injections can likely prevent you from needing to do any cutting down there. And then lastly, otologic involvement happens probably in about 25-ish percent of patients. The most common symptom is subjective hearing loss and on exam seeing a serous media. Um, you can also, in an unclear amount of patients, have some eye involvement or oral lesions. What would you include in the workup for a patient that you suspect may have GPA or what's typically involved in the diagnosis of GPA? Well, again, I like to reiterate that the most important thing for these patients is their history. And then the second most important is just evaluating those three different systems, the ears, the nose, and the larynx. But apart from that, when it comes to physical testing, if you want to get a biopsy diagnosis, it almost certainly is not going to be coming from any subglottic stenosis. I've never in my career seen any granulomas on those biopsies. Presumably, you might catch one at some point. So for that reason, I do recommend biopsying them if you are going to be incising that stenosis. But in general, you're not going to get anything of yield from those biopsies. You're just going to see fibrosis. The highest yield spot, if we're talking about just ENT involvement, if we don't have a lesion in the kidney, we don't have a lesion in the lung, um, your highest site for you to biopsy is going to be the inferior turbinate, um, specifically the head of it. So basically, in the office, you inject it with some Lido with Epi, spray in a bunch of Lido, spray in a bunch of neosinephrine, and you rip it and grip it and you pull it out. And then basically, you're going to send that for pathology. And typically, I like to give my pathologist a little heads up, say, concerned about granulomatosis with polyangiitis, and look for any granulomas. Other times, if I'm less certain about the disease and I don't want to give them a heads up, I won't. And then it's not infrequent that they won't see a granuloma. And if they don't, I'll bug them and go back and say, hey, do you mind just re-reviewing that to see if you have any granulomas around there? 
Um, lastly, one thing I'll do for all of my subgloxinosis patients is test them for C-ANCA. Um, it's positive in most patients that have GPA. Um, and up to 20% of patients with GPA with respiratory involvement do have a negative ANCA test. So that by itself is not going to tell you um, that you definitely have the disease, but it's just more evidence in the right direction. Um, if you are C-ANCA positive, I recommend getting a proteinase 3, a PR3, because it's more specific. So if that's positive, again, more evidence that you're going the right direction with this. Um, I don't typically get an ESR or CRP, but they are typically elevated in these patients, but elevated in pretty much every rheumatologic disease. Um, CBC can show anemia in about half these patients. Again, this is typically something that I'll have the rheumatologist work up if they've already turned positive, but this won't direct me in my, my leaning towards this diagnosis or not. In your practice, does imaging play a large role in making this diagnosis? Uh, do you get a CT chest on each of these patients? Typically not. Um, if I'm working them up for this potential disease and I'm pretty certain that they have it, I will get a CT chest just to see if there is any lung involvement, especially if I'm going to go to the OR. But apart from that, I'm expecting to get my diagnosis based on my inferior turbinate uh, biopsy and based off of the clinical picture and then send them to rheumatology to really work them up further. And regarding biopsy, I know you said that subglottic stenosis is frequently not high yield and that the best bet for the ENT surgeon would be from the inferior turbinate. If those are negative, I'll point out that the best location per my literature review is actually of a lung lesion. Do you ever send these patients off to, let's say, IR to get a biopsy for a tissue diagnosis to confirm GPA? Once we've done imaging of the chest, if it shows something there and my biopsy of the inferior turbinate has not come back as helpful, then yes, that, that would typically be who I send it to, depending on its exact location in the lung. Otherwise, interventional pulmonology can be a good option as well. And I know you already started into this, but would you mind talking about the treatment for a patient with GPA? So that's going to be a recurring theme for today's episode, which is basically, typically they'll start off on high dose prednisone and then transition to non-steroidal immunomodulating agents. There are a ton on the market and there's new ones coming out every day. Old school ones being methotrexate, newer school ones being rituximab and even newer ones than that. Um, typically for most of these systemic rheumatologic diseases, prednisone works the quickest. It also has the most side effects for most of them. So that's why we typically transition off of them, typically starting them off on 60 milligrams of that daily. That being said, I don't love giving patients high dose steroids for long periods of time. I don't like to take on the responsibility of that. At the same time, for a lot of these patients, I don't feel comfortable them going a long period of time without starting treatment. So I'll typically reach out to rheumatology, tell them what diagnosis we've already given them or are highly suspicious of. If we haven't declared a diagnosis and are still expecting more biopsies, I will try to avoid starting at steroid if at all possible. But if we've gotten our diagnosis, we know which way we're going. I feel totally comfortable starting them off on 60 milligrams daily of prednisone, contacting rheumatology, telling them what the plan is, and them being able to then switch them over to some other type of non-steroidal medication, assuming they're at a point at that point that they can do that. Different diseases respond differently to these medications. Um, luckily, GPA is one of the ones that does respond relatively well to oral steroids. And when patients are treated for GPA, what would you expect in terms of outcome and prognosis regarding their symptoms? Well, it depends entirely on where you're at when you've made that diagnosis. Have you developed a frank stenosis in the subglottis by the time 
you've made this diagnosis, do you have synechiae in the nose? If yes to both of those, those aren't going to resolve with medication. You're going to need to do surgery at some point in the future. Again, I don't recommend doing any of these surgeries in the acute inflammatory condition that they're in, if at all possible. That being said, if you've caught them when they just have those pillows in the infraglottis, I expect that with time and with oral medication, this should resolve or with injectables, whatever they're using for their immunomodulating agents. Um, it may take a long time though. Oral steroids alone, 60 milligrams of prednisone can take well over a month before you notice a significant difference in that subglottic appearance, which is why if at all possible, I recommend injecting those steroids at the same time that really speeds up that process. And once someone has been treated, what's the likelihood that they're going to recur or that the disease is going to come back? I coach them that there is a high likelihood it will come back at some point in their life and to keep an eye out on these things. I defer to them and to their rheumatologist whether or not they warrant lifelong treatment. But if they have no lifelong treatment, I would expect that at some point this does come back. And if it does, that's fine. It's just important to catch it early so we can restart them on the appropriate medications and the appropriate treatments before it leads to real scarring. Next up, we have sarcoidosis. What is sarcoidosis and how does it present? Well, sarcoidosis is a chronic idiopathic granulomatosis disease characterized by non-caseating, keyword non-caseating granulomas. It's going to affect any organ system in the body. Um, classically, it's found in the lungs and bilateral hilar adenopathy and pulmonary reticular opacities are the classic findings within the lungs. It also frequently involves the skin, the joints, and the eyes. None of these obviously affect our specific field, but important to know because, again, if you have systemic involvement of this disease, you need to put this in a greater scheme of picture. Symptoms are typically mild, um, even with extensive tissue involvement, and it typically is a very slow progression of disease in terms of slowly getting worse and slowly getting better. Oftentimes, it's many relapses and remissions, and many of these patients, they don't have symptoms, but they're coming in for another reason. It's diagnosed based on some unusual find that you've found on physical exam. In terms of our field, um, the most common symptoms that your patients typically are going to prevent present with is some mild dysphagia, some mild dyspnea, maybe a cough, maybe some mild hoarseness. All of these are very nonspecific. None of them really put you into looking at this disease until you actually take a look down into their larynx. I will say that airway obstruction is very rare. Um, in the sense of an emergency, but it can definitely happen very slowly and become a concern over time. What's the epidemiology of sarcoid and how frequently does it involve the larynx? Well, current statistics show this at about 50 to 160 people per 100,000 based on our understanding of the world population, not just America. Um, it's more common in African-Americans the lifetime risk of sarcoidosis of some form among African-Americans is 2.4% compared to less than 1% for Caucasian-Americans. It's more common in females than males, approximately two times as likely for females within this country at least. Most commonly it involves the lungs, but 30% of patients also present with extra pulmonary symptoms. Under 10% of patients with sarcoidosis though will not have any lung involvement. Isolated laryngeal sarcoidosis is rare, but that's what we'll be mostly focusing on today. And laryngeal sarcoidosis is estimated to occur in approximately 1% to 5% of all sarcoid patients. Would you mind walking us through your workup for a patient with sarcoid? 
Absolutely. So in these patients, again, you're going to get these nonspecific complaints. And this is going to lead you to doing a laryngoscopy. If you have voice complaints, a stroboscopy as well. And the most common finding you'll see when you're looking down there is what's described as a turban-like thickening of the epiglottis. So you have this really just beefy fat. Maybe it's red, but oftentimes it's just pink and pale diffuse swelling of the epiglottis and oftentimes also the AE folds. And you can have this very watery balloon-like appearance of the arytenoids with prolapsing into your airway. You can have some erythema, but again, it's not common. You can have punctate nodules, again, not common. Uncommonly, you'll see ulcerations. The most common appearance, again, is just this gross swelling throughout. Epigloss is the most common, followed by the arytenoids, followed by the AE folds, followed by the false focal folds. False focal folds are by far the most uncommon location of the swelling, and typically you'll see the other three in all of these patients. In terms of a biopsy, if you can, if they have systemic involvement, your lung is going to be your highest yield. However, lots of times for these patients, they're presenting to you without a diagnosis of sarcoidosis, and their only involvement that's apparent is going to be in the larynx. I recommend at least getting a chest x-ray to start off with, but if it's completely clear, you're thinking that this is probably isolated to the larynx. As such, a biopsy is going to be what's necessary in order for rheumatology to land on this diagnosis and for them to want to treat them with anything significant. Just treating them with corticosteroids is a very, very slow process. So even if you had the presumptive diagnosis of this, the medication won't necessarily give you the diagnosis. So it really does involve a biopsy. You also want to rule out other granulomatosis type diseases. So are there other vasculitides involved here? Is there a tuberculosis that's giving you that same appearance? It absolutely could. I typically will draw blood when I'm concerned that someone has sarcoid. And when someone has systemic sarcoid, their ACE levels will typically be elevated, but it's not nearly as common as that when you have just isolated sarcoid in the larynx. And when you have an elevated ACE level, it has a very poor sensitivity. So just because you have that, that does not give you the diagnosis of sarcoid. When it comes to imaging, I mentioned that I typically would get just an x-ray of the chest. If it shows something, maybe yes, maybe no, then we'll proceed with the CT chest. Um, and apart from that, if they're not having any dyspnea, typically will not get any pulmonary function testing. Going back to the biopsy, typically I'll do a direct laryngoscopy with biopsy. Doing an in-office biopsy typically will not give you enough tissues to get that granuloma. And that's what you're really looking for on that biopsy is, do you have a non-caseating granuloma? And I'll typically take it a couple different places, anywhere that shows any gross amount of swelling. So the epiglottis is one of them. Arytenoid is another common site. I'll take a big chunk of tissue. Um, the simplest way I typically find it to take these out is just to grab them and to use a sharp scissor to cut them out. Um, but you can also just do a, a grip and rip with those as well. And you started with this, but how do you treat laryngeal sarcoid? It is hard to treat. I will say that. Rheumatologists hate treating isolated laryngeal sarcoid because it responds so slowly. Typically, again, we'll start them off on 60 milligrams of prednisone daily, but it works so slowly. And by the time it's actually making any difference, you're breaking down the rest of their body. So typically you also will very quickly switch them over to a non-steroid immunosuppressant. But again, these work very, very slowly. 
and in isolated laryngeal involvement, they may not have any improvement whatsoever. So for that reason, I typically will offer these patients intralesional injections of steroids. This will involve when you're in the OR, after you've done your biopsy, I'll inject a lot of catalog all around, but apart from that, also doing it in the office. Even this may not make a significant difference in these patients. Once we have a legitimate diagnosis, and if we're not making any headway with the oral medications or with the in-office catalog injections, I'll offer them a, what I call and what some people out in the field will call a pepper pop procedure. And it's basically just using a CO2 laser commonly or a KTP laser and just burning holes, leaving a little bit of mucosa, moving to the next spot and burning another hole and just burning every little bit of mucosa that has any edema in it. It will look really ugly afterwards. When you see them two weeks afterwards, it will also look incredibly ugly and look like you haven't really made that much progress. But when you see them back maybe a month or a month and a half after the surgery, they will look remarkably better. Luckily for this disease, that tissue all scars down onto the underlying structures. Um, again, you're not treating the vocal cords, so you're not worried about that scarring, but you lose a ton of that edema and you'll get them a lot closer to a normal appearing larynx at that point. Next up is amyloidosis. What is amyloidosis and how does it present? This is an idiopathic disease with extracellular deposition of an insoluble protein. There are currently 18 types of systemic and 22 localized forms of this disease. Laryngeal amyloidosis is typically localized, meaning that you're not typically seeing this in a systemic amyloidosis type patient. However, you can have that, which means that if you are diagnosing a patient with amyloidosis in their larynx, they do need a systemic workup to make sure they don't have it in other places, as well as to make sure they don't have multiple myeloma. Most common symptoms for this, again, is not very specific. Um, typically, the most common one is dysphonia. Second most common is cough. Much less common is going to be dyspnea or strider. But again, the most common presenting symptom is a nonspecific dysphonia. So how common is amyloidosis and how frequently is it going to be seen by an otolaryngologist? This is a pretty rare disease. Um, it is seen more commonly in African-Americans as well as Puerto Ricans. It's most commonly presenting in your 30s or 40s and about 10 to 15% present in the head and neck region with tongue being the most common location of these. And what about the workup for amyloidosis? Oftentimes, a diagnosis can basically be made just on laryngoscopy. There's often this telltale yellow sign or this appearance of what looks kind of like a kidney stone in the infraglottis on both vocal cords that really gives away that this is almost certainly an amyloidosis. Really, what you need is a biopsy to specifically prove that. And the stain you need to know is Congo red stain is what they'll be using most commonly. And what's going to show is an apple green by refringence under polarized light for these amyloid crystals. It's going to be extracellular, acellular, eosinophilic protein aggregates of this. If I have an actual diagnosis based on biopsy, before the patient sees our hematologist for further workup of potential systemic amyloidosis, I like to do a lot of the work for them. Makes me look smart, makes their job easier. So this involves several different things that at my institution they specifically have requested. So I have my order set, set up, ready to rock and roll if I have one of these patients. So they'll want an echocardiogram, a UA, 
a PTT, basic metabolic panel, CBC, an EKG, hepatic function panel, immunoglobulin-free light chains, monoclonal protein study for a 24-hour urine collection, a monoclonal protein study for the blood, pro-BNP, PT, SPEP, and lastly, troponin. Um, this is because of the multiple different organs that can be involved in this. And if all these come back as normal, then basically the hematologist will say, hi, these all look good. You have localized laryngeal amyloidosis and no further workup is needed. If anything is abnormal, they'll do their own further investigation on that. And what's the treatment for laryngeal amyloidosis? Treatment is based purely on symptoms. So this isn't a cancer. We're not going to treat this just because it needs to come out. If it's just on their false focal fold and it's not affecting anything, I'm not going to touch it. There's no reason to. However, if we do have involvement that's causing dysphonia for them, I would recommend that we do some form of excision to improve their voice. If the excision is not going to improve their voice, there's no reason to do it. Oftentimes, this involves an incision in the operating room and excising as much of this aggregate material as possible with damaging as little of the mucosa as possible. Laser can be helpful with this, so making a mucosal incision and then going underneath that mucosa and using either a KTP or CO2 laser to ablate that. I will do as much as safely possible without making their voice any worse. Lots of times for more superglottic disease, if I want to get that just under better control, I'll bring them back into the office after we've done a significant amount of debulking in the operating room and then treating that with a KTP laser in the office, just trying to get as much debulking done as possible and then just surveilling them in the future. But again, the key is to focus on improvement of symptoms. If you think that your surgery is going to make their voice worse, it's not the right operation for them. Radiation therapy is an option for large airway disease. It's uncommon for that to present in patients, but if the bulking surgically is not an option for them, it has been described. Um, very, very rarely is a tracheotomy needed for these patients. And how do you expect patients to do with treatment for those that have laryngeal amyloidosis? This is extremely variable based off of where it's located. If it's located just in their supraglottis and it's maybe prolapsing onto their vocal cord, they should do great because you can resect all of that without causing any damage to their voice, any damage to their vocal cord. If it's involving their glottis, and most commonly it's going to be in that anterior infraglottis, it's extremely variable about how they'll do. Usually I coach them that they should expect improvements in their voice, but to set realistic expectations that we shouldn't expect a quote-unquote normal voice of what they had years ago before this disease started. Um, they have great long-term survival. I do recommend follow-up for them. If this is a disease that's involving just their vocal cords, though, up to them if they just want to come back once they notice any change to their voice. Okay, next up is rheumatoid arthritis. What is rheumatoid arthritis and how does it present? This is another one of those autoimmune diseases, and it often involves inflammation of synovial tissue. So your common presentation is going to be a polyarthritis, joint stiffness, commonly in the hands. When it comes to the head and neck presentation, most commonly it's going to involve some form of TMJ. Next most common is going to be some type of laryngeal involvement, and much less common is going to be involvement of the ossicular joints. When it comes to laryngeal manifestations, the most common first sign is a loss of high-frequency phonation. 
how common is rheumatoid arthritis and how often does it involve the larynx? It's a very common disease. Current estimates put it at about 0.25% in the U.S. population, um, so about 1 in 1,000 people. More frequently seen in females, about two to three times more likely, um, can be at any age range, but most commonly in middle age. Laryngeal involvement is all over the place. So some estimates put it as low as 25%, some put it as high as 80%, whereas on post-mortem dissection, over 90% of patients with RA have some form of laryngeal involvement. The more common laryngeal presentation is with an active inflammatory disease, tenderness, and erythema of the vocal folds. And then with the more chronic form, you can start to develop some vocal fold abnormalities uh, and present it with hoarseness. Would you mind walking through your workup for these patients? So again, a very thorough history is very important with these patients. Again, family history as well. Um, on your flexible laryngoscopy slash stroboscopy, classically you're taught frequently that one of the things you can see is an immobile vocal fold due to cricoretinoid joint ankylosis. However, I've never seen that in my career, so I would say it's a very uncommon presentation of rheumatoid arthritis. Instead, what's much more common is to see this nonspecific edema throughout both vocal cords, to see a significant amount of erythema, um, to have bamboo nodules. Oftentimes, these are red, swollen vocal folds and arytenoids. But if you do have involvement of your cricoarytenoid joint, you can get immobility or hypomobility of one or both vocal folds. Um, the most classic appearance are these bamboo nodules, which are submucosal nodules that can develop in either one or both vocal folds. And they can appear in not just this disease, but pretty much any autoimmune disease. This includes, but it's not limited to Sjogren's, lupus, Hashimoto's, mixed connective tissue disease, scleroderma, polymyositis. And it can be just one bump. It can be multiple bumps. It can be on both vocal cords. They have a mixed appearance and they can be confused when just solitary as an intracordial cyst. But once cutting them out with surgery, it's quite apparent because they'll have this yellow, cruddy type appearance to things. Um, on blood work, you'll have a rheumatoid factor that's elevated most frequently um, that has a good sensitivity. But what's more specific is your anti-CCP. Um, ESR is also frequently elevated. Uh, changes will also be seen on synovial fluid analysis, but this is usually not needed. From an ENT perspective, biopsy is never warranted to develop this diagnosis. Instead, if you are going to get tissue, it's because you've performed a surgery for treatment. And in our discussion before the start of this episode, you'd said that unlike many of the other disorders, frequently people come into your office with rheumatoid arthritis as a diagnosis already in hand. Is that right? Correct. I would say that pretty much every other rheumatoid autoimmune disease that we're going to be talking about today, I've diagnosed except for this one. I've never diagnosed a patient based on their laryngeal presentation yet, at least. Um, they almost always have this long-standing history of rheumatoid arthritis, have been on medication. Very important to ask about which medications because separate from RA, methotrexate can cause dysphonia. Methotrexate has been known to cause changes in appearance of the vocal folds. So when you have a patient that has both RA and methotrexate, you're not sure which one is the cause of their underlying dysphonia. So for that reason, I oftentimes ask patients to speak with their rheumatologist to talk about transitioning off of methotrexate to a different medication. If they still have the same issue several months later, we won't blame it on that medication, so we'll blame it on the RA itself. 
when it comes to specific treatment for this disease, typically we're talking about voice therapy alone. However, that alone is not going to get rid of any bamboo nodules or any other large mechanical issues you see with the vocal fold. When it comes to those, typically a micro flap and removing of the nodules is what's recommended. However, unlike a cyst, where if you do the surgery appropriately, there is a strong chance that they may develop the same bamboo nodule in the future or may develop other bamboo nodules. So it's important to set realistic expectations about what they should expect going forward and the possibility of this having a recurrence. Apart from providing surgery, medical management of the overall RA is important, mostly for their joint disease. And I coach them that I want to get good control of their systemic inflammation of this disease, but I don't expect necessarily any of these bamboo nodules or any of these more global changes to their vocal folds to change should they undergo medical management of their RA, but it may at least make it less erythematous, less edematous, may make the surgery a little bit easier, may make the recovery a little bit easier. But ultimately, when it comes to a, a frank bamboo nodule, medication alone is really going to make a change with that. Do you find that flare-ups for rheumatoid problems like joint pain often correlate with flare-ups of laryngeal symptoms? I have had some patients that note that. Um, the only finding I've seen that correlates with those flares is some more erythema and some more edema. I haven't seen any more nodules pop up during those acute flares. So that's probably more of a chronic process. But yeah, you can definitely have more acute changes with the vocal folds during these flare-ups. Okay, we're almost there. Next up, we have mucous membrane pemphigoid. Dr. Carly, would you mind talking about what MMP is? This is one of the more interesting rheumatologic disease is my opinion. It's a sub-epithelial blistering disorder due to autoimmune destruction of proteins responsible for intracellular junctions. It's typically IgG-mediated. The antibodies are against hemidesmosomes, and what it leads to is this submucosal blisters, tense blisters, and rarely does it have any skin involvement. Most importantly to know for testing is your DIF, your immunofluorescence, is going to show a linear deposition along the basement membrane. How common is mucous membrane pemphigoid, and does it frequently involve the larynx? It's a very, very rare condition in general, but when it does exist, it very frequently will have some laryngeal involvement. I think one of the things that confuses me most when thinking about mucous membrane pemphigoid is I think back to medical school and the two more commonly discussed skin disorders of pemphigus vulgaris and bolus pemphigoid come to mind. How does mucous membrane pemphigoid differ from those two disorders? So it'd probably be easiest to classify mucous membrane pemphigoid as a cousin or a variant of bolus pemphigoid. What's confusing is that you're always taught that bolus pemphigoid doesn't involve the mucous membranes. It only involves the skin, whereas mucous membrane pemphigoid is literally the exact opposite and always will involve the mucous membranes and won't involve the skin or very rarely will involve the skin, I should say. Um, but they both have that direct immunofluorescence showing that linear deposition along the base of membrane. So it's a similar pathophysiology of how this works, but the symptoms and the exact tissue that it attacks is different. So that would be the best way of, of parsing out the difference between those skin diseases and the way you should think about mucous membrane pemphigoid. So how does MMP present? Well, it most often involves the eyes and the mouth. It can involve literally any part of the body that has a mucous membrane though. 
This includes the esophagus, the trachea, the larynx, nasal mucosa, the genitalia. It also presents typically in the larynx with hoarseness, later strider, dyspnea. Typical first symptom, though, is pain in the throat. It's important to try to catch this inflammation early on because if not caught early on, it will always lead to scarring, and this scarring can be significant, leading to complete esophageal, complete laryngeal stenosis, nasal perforations and sneakii, eventually leading to complete obliteration of their airway, inability to swallow, blindness, really bad complications if this thing isn't caught early. What do you find with workup for these patients? Well, it depends on what structure we're talking about. When it comes to the larynx, laryngoscopy will often show superglottic involvement at least. However, lots of times this will spread down to the glottis and the subglottis. It most typically presents with this white exudate that has this irregular appearance and is adherent to a significant portion of at least the superglottis. Um, sometimes you'll see these blebs, but oftentimes the first time you see these patients, those blisters have already burst and now you're just seeing the exudate portion of it. If you have a patient though that you know already has had the diagnosis of mucous membrane pemphigoid and you're serially following them and they don't really have any symptoms yet, you can actually catch them when they're starting to develop these blisters before they've burst and that's really when you want to catch them if at all possible. When it comes to diagnosis of this, yes, the story and the sites that are involved are very important, but there are several overlapping dermatologic diseases that can cause a similar presentation. And when it comes to your dermatopathologist, it's very important that you give them the tissue that they need to get that right diagnosis for you so you can use the right medication. First thing is to reach out to your specific dermatopathology department to ask them which formula they want this tissue sent in. I've had different answers at different institutions. The most common one is to send the lesion or a perilesional sample in Michelle's formula and to also send a perilesional sample in formalin for permanent analysis. The Michelle's formula is used for the direct immunofluorescence, which is the key to gain this diagnosis. What's also very important to know about your biopsies is that they don't typically want one that are done via a punch biopsy or a grip it and rip it type biopsy. The reason being is they want that basement membrane to be guaranteed to be intact. So they'll want you to grab it and excise it with a scalpel or scissors, whatever it takes to be very gentle with that tissue so that basement membrane is still intact when you get it to them. And what's the treatment? Well, very similar to other rheumatologic diseases, we're going to be using high-dose oral corticosteroids to start off with and then switching to a non-steroid immunosuppression. Unlike these other diseases, this one at times is treated with no medication and is just proceeded with observation. However, if you aren't, or even if you are continuing on lifelong medication for this disease, it's very important that they're being seen by the specialist that observes that part of the body. So for example, with the larynx, an ENT provider, to make sure that they're catching any signs or symptoms of this disease before it progresses. If you do see those symptoms, it's important that you send them immediately over to the rheumatologist, communicate with them so that they can either increase the dose of whatever medication they're on, start a new one, or restart a medication. When it comes to surgery, I highly recommend avoiding doing any surgery if at all possible while they have active disease. It's very important that you fully treat their disease, get them to come out of their inflammatory stage before you try to fix any of their other symptoms. Once you have gotten them under control, whatever's left is going to be a stenotic fibrotic scar.
depending on where that scar is will determine how you cater your surgery. But again, it's very important that you don't actually have them undergo surgery when they're undergoing treatment for this, when they have an active flare. And again, consulting with your dermatopathologist for knowing how to get your diagnosis and consulting with your dermatologist for further treatment for this. And last, but certainly not least, we have IgG4-related disease. So what is IgG4-related disease and how does it present? What a good question. Well, we know it's a fibro-inflammatory condition, but we don't know much about it. It was first really termed back in 2003, and it's been described in pretty much every organ system at this point. It used to have a lot of separate diagnoses that have now come under the umbrella of IgG4-related disease. I won't go through all of them, but some of them are eosinophilic angiocentric fibrosis, multifocal fibrosclerosis, inflammatory pseudotumor, and so on and so forth. And there is no classic presentation for IgG4-related disease. It's made on a pathological diagnosis standpoint, and it can be an unusual tumor-like swelling in any of the involved organs. So how common is it? Well, that's another tough question to answer just because it is a relatively new disease and it's not well understood and it's probably not accurately diagnosed in all cases where we don't have a good diagnosis for these patients. So because of all that, we don't really have good data on how prevalent it is within society. There is some data that there may be some slight preponderance of this disease in middle-aged and older men, but apart from that, we don't know much. What do you see in workup for these patients? Well, there are specific criteria to get this diagnosis. For serology, you would expect an elevated serum IgG4. However, this only occurs in about 60% of patients. So this is not part of the specific criteria to get the diagnosis. More importantly is looking at your pathologic specimen. So depending on what tissue you got, you have the same criteria and you need to get two of these first three. So you need to see a dense lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate. You need to see fibrosis with storyform pattern. And you also need to see obliterative phlebitis. Again, two of those three need to be positive at least to get this diagnosis. On top of those two of three, you also need to have within your specimen an IgG4 to IgG ratio greater than 40%. So assuming you have two of those first three criteria and you have that IgG4 ratio, then you have your diagnosis. Earlier in this podcast, you mentioned that there's utility in cluing your pathologist in beforehand about what you suspect a disorder is versus not telling them to allow them to not have anchoring bias and to have a more broad differential. Do you find that because this is a newer disorder that you have to clue your pathologist into it to look for it before you send them tissue or do you not have to? Well, when it comes to a lot of other diseases, I kind of just go by my whim or my gut or what I feel like that day in terms of if I want to cue in the pathologist as to what disease I'm thinking about. When it comes to IgG4-related disease, that's one of the few where pretty much every single time I'm going to warn them that that's not my differential because that requires special staining and something that they're not typically looking for unless you give them that clinical picture. What's the treatment for these patients? Well, again, similar to other rheumatologic diseases, you have the same strategy of starting off with prednisone and then switching to a steroid-sparing agent. Um, I have seen good evidence that doing intralesional steroid injections can have good response in these patients. So that's another good point to remember when it comes to this specific disease. And how do patients respond to treatment? Usually it's slow. 
both with either the oral or injection strategy. When it comes to other treatments, surgery is an option. Um, I've seen plenty of patients that have a superglottic tumor that's prolapsing onto the vocal fold. Doing a debulking of that followed by intralesional injections has gotten me great results. And the most classic appearance I've seen of these tumors is something that feels and looks like a cartilage when you start cutting into it. Well, Dr. Carley, this has been an absolute marathon. Thank you for taking the time to review all of these different disorders. And I think we did our best at being comprehensive, but also as succinct as we could make it. Hopefully you find this helpful. To sum up today's episode, given that the clinical presentation of many of these different disorders overlaps to one degree or another, and that the presenting symptoms are often nonspecific, it's important to keep a broad differential in mind when someone presents with laryngeal symptoms. A thorough history and review of a patient's comorbidities are imperative. Serology, laryngoscopy, response to treatment, and biopsy can be helpful adjuncts in confirming a diagnosis. Importantly, working together with the appropriate medical disciplines can help provide comprehensive care to these patients with underlying systemic disease. To wrap up the episode, let's do a couple of questions. First, Laryngeal lesions of amyloidosis most often manifest in which portion of the larynx? Laryngeal lesions of amyloidosis most often manifest in the glottis. One helpful mnemonic to remember different localization of common systemic diseases that manifest in the larynx moves superior to inferior with the mnemonic SAG. Sarcoidosis in the supraglottis, amyloidosis in the glottis, and granulomatosis with polyangiitis and the subglottis. Next question. Where is the most common ENT manifestation of granulomatosis with polyangiitis? This is sort of a trick question. Although we focused on laryngeal manifestations, don't forget that the most common ENT manifestations of GPA are sinonasal with 60 to 90% of ENT presentations being sinonasal, 25% of them being otologic, and less than 20% of patients with GPA manifesting with subglottic stenosis. Lastly, a patient presents with slow progressive hoarseness and cough. On laryngoscopy, you note a turban-like thickening of the epiglottis. What diagnosis is highest on your differential for this patient? Sarcoidosis classically manifests as pale, pink, diffuse swelling of the supraglottis, sometimes referred to as a turban-like thickening. Symptoms are generally mild with a very slow progression. All right, well, thank you again for joining us for another episode of Headmere's ENT in a Nutshell. We look forward to seeing you next time.